both youth and adults transitioning in and out of prison or jail are at risk to some of the highest health adversities due to a number of issues such as social, economic, and environmental causes. For that reason, you see that most people involved in the justice system also qualify for Medicaid. Since 1965, the Medicaid inmate exclusion policy has barred adults and youth from receiving Medicaid services. And for years, states have recognized the obstruction that this policy causes for youth and adults to receive crucial care. This harms their potential for success in these transitional stages. 13 states are currently seeking to minimize these effects through a Section 1115 waiver, which is the waiver request process for states to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, to adapt Medicaid, Medicare, or CHIP fund use within their state. These state requests are looking to provide services in varying time periods from 30 to even 90 days before a person is released from jail or prison. Push efforts and provide state and federal guidance on these high potential Medicaid policies, the Health and Reentry Project, also known as HARP, was formed, a coalition across sectors, perspectives, and experiences, all driven to support the health of youth and adults as they are leaving prison and jails. I am Brina Antonia Cortez, a National Urban Fellow in the 2023 MPM class serving as an interview editor for the Georgetown Public Policy Review. For this episode, I'm joined by an advisory member of HARP, Khalil Cumberbatch, who is a national leader and advocate on criminal justice and deportation policy, and is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Council for Criminal Justice. We also have HARP's Executive Director, Vicky Wachino, a dedicated practitioner in advancing health equity through healthcare policy. She is also a principal at Viaduct Consulting and a former deputy administrator for CMS. to have you both here with me today. HARP has an advisory committee with an array of backgrounds and experiences and has a wide reach with individual interviews and a multi-sector convening. But let's bring it back. What is HARP and what has been your roles in this effort? Sure, Brina, thank you so much for, for having me. We created HARP because you know, for a long time there's been unrealized potential to help connect people to healthcare services at reentry. And by doing so, improving people's health, public health, public safety, and helping people as they're leaving prison and jail return to their communities and families successfully. But historically, we've done very little to support people in accessing healthcare as they reenter. Too often, the model is you're out on the street and good luck to you. And that's not a strategy for success. We know that the reentry period poses very high risks to people in terms of their health. We see high rates of death after release. We see high rates of overdose after release. And we see high rates of emergency room use for a range of, of conditions. And suddenly, there was this opportunity to flip the script 
Um, suddenly, so there was a lot of attention on the part of both federal and state policy leaders in changing the reentry process for people to help them access health care, specifically by having Medicaid start to cover some services before someone is released from prison and jail. A bit of background, there's very little health insurance in the correctional health care system. And Medicaid, the health insurance program that covers low-income people in the United States, is the dominant insurer of people in the justice system because so many people in prison and jail are poor. Incarceration correlates highly with poverty. I and mean, also, as I expect we'll talk about, with race. Really, there was a case to be made for really expanding Medicaid's role to better meet the needs of this population. Yet Medicaid has, since it was created, been barred from covering services when someone is in prison and jail. So even if you're eligible for Medicaid, once you're incarcerated, Medicaid plays no role for you. And that's part of just a larger siloing of the community health care system from the correctional health care system. And over time, there's been interest in changing that and meeting people's health needs better and in changing Medicaid's role. And that's what's exciting and groundbreaking about this particular moment is for the first time, there's very active discussion in some states and at the federal level of letting Medicaid cover some services like case management, like medications before someone is released. And this is why we created the Health and Reentry Project is we saw the active discussion about these issues and we thought it was exciting, but we also thought that there's a lot at stake in how these decisions get made and in how they're carried out. A lot at stake for the millions of people who are in prison and jail and leave it each year, a lot at stake for the communities that are affected by incarceration, and a lot at stake for the systems that will have to carry out these changes. So we created the Health and Reentry Project to bring those entities and people and stakeholders together around a table to have a discussion about how should these changes take place? What is it that people really need to have their health needs met as they're reentering? And how do we make it happen? Yeah, and I'll just add, and thank you again, Brina, as well, for having me on with Vicky to talk about our work on the heart, but also talk a little bit about the work that the Council on Criminal Justice does. So I had the pleasure of serving double duty for this particular project. I work at the Council as a full-time employee. My official title is Director of Strategic Partnerships, and I work to engage our individual membership body, as well as our corporate members, and as well as other stakeholders in the field of criminal justice reform around the various different outputs that we put forth as an organization. And in this particular case, the Health and Reentry Project. And I also got to serve as an advisory member to the HARP. And, you know, obviously my experience as a professional in the field of criminal justice reform was one perspective that I brought, but I was really pleased to also talk about my personal experience with incarceration, as well as reentry, and to talk a little bit about some of the experiences that I had witnessing just the complete lack of healthcare or, or structured healthcare system within the prisons and jails that I served time in, also to see what it looked like on the outside when someone exited a prison or a jail, and to really talk about some of the barriers that I saw 
and through my first full-time job after I came home, helped some of the people that I worked with and for as a case manager to help navigate some of those barriers as well. So I was really happy to be able to lend both of those experiences to the HARP. I'll just say one thing that really is unusual about HARP is that it's a partnership. It's a partnership between me, who's spent a lot of time in healthcare policy, the Council on Criminal Justice that thinks about advancing better criminal justice policy, and also Waxman Strategies, which is a strategy firm based here in Washington, D.C. And then along with that, um, central to how we carried HARP out was engaging stakeholders across systems, the health system, the criminal justice system, recognizing that they both have a lot at stake in this new policy, as well as people who are concerned with social justice and people with direct experience of incarceration. Bringing all of those people and stakeholders around a table together, I think was really essential to establishing a vision of how we're going to make these changes. And sometimes not all of those perspectives align, but we were really thrilled to have a lot of involvement from a lot of stakeholders and clearly the input of, as I think you'll hear more about soon, the input of people like Khalil with direct experience of incarceration really helped us establish a North Star for implementation of these new policies. I was really impressed when I saw HARP's roster of committee members from local and state leaders, criminal justice practitioners, and public health specialists. Bringing together such a wide breadth of stakeholders who all have a unique impact and role supporting people in transition is not an easy task. We often hear so much about polarization and disagreement within the policy realm. It takes immense effort from all members to bridge these connections, facilitate, and ultimately come to mutual agreement on a set of policy recommendations. What are some guidance points you can recommend for building and collaborating with such a large coalition group? Building any coalition is not easy, especially when you're building one where one of your main principles is to ensure that there is a wide gamut of experiences. And so the HARP, when being convened, obviously we wanted to continue that practice. We wanted to ensure that we had people who worked in the medical field, people who worked as policymakers, people who worked in corrections, people who were law enforcement officials. We even had the lieutenant governor of the state of Illinois as a member, and of course, to listen to people who were directly impacted. And so that is always a challenge. One of the things that I think continuously pleases me and is always something to admire is People come to this work from various different angles, but generally people come to this issue, particularly around criminal justice and criminal justice reform. In this case, the, the intersection of health and reentry, people generally agree on what the desired outcomes are, which is that we want safer communities. We want a system that is giving people exactly what they need, when they need it, and we want them to do it in a just and fair and equitable way. Now, obviously, when we're talking about HARP, there were a ton of complexities because we weren't only talking about jails and or prisons, which that in and of itself is a very complex conversation. Well, we're also talking about the structure and the kind of delivery of health care in general in this country, which, of course, that in and of itself is also a very complex conversation. But then you're also talking about Medicaid 
and that as a complex apparatus as well. And of course, having someone like Vicky with her experience helping to guide that made that a little bit easier. But essentially, we're talking about three massively complex systems that at the crux of this one issue, health and reentry, they all overlaid and sometimes stacked on top of each other. So when understanding that and kind of engaging in that endeavor of uh, having a conversation, I think that, you know, obviously one of the key kind of underlying structures that you want to build a foundation on is just respect the fact that someone's perspective of a particular issue may be very different. When you see someone who is a sheriff or someone who works in corrections or someone who works in law enforcement, uh, having a conversation with someone who was formerly incarcerated about reentry, there are a bunch of assumptions that come with that. But in the end, as I said, people generally come to that conversation wanting the same outcome. Same thing happened here with HARP, which is that we tried to build a advisory group of people who had respect for each other's experience, both lived and professional. We also tried to have guiding principles of people generally listening to other perspectives. And listening and respecting other perspectives, are they don't always go hand in hand. But in this case, we obviously tried to maintain that. And I think it's important to, to understand as a professional that my professional experience stops somewhere. I've never been a person to be in, in law enforcement. I've never uh, been someone who has worked within the healthcare system. I've never been someone who has been responsible for running a jail. And so I had to understand, although I've lived through some of those experiences, didn't mean that my experience was the end or be all within that group. And so that was also key important point was to make sure that folks were listened to, respected, and that folks understood that in the end of all of it, your experience only goes but so far. And we needed to rely on the experience of other advisory group members to actually help to color in the picture as much as we could. I think coalition and collaboration is always important to implementation of new policies. But in this case, there are two unique features of the need for collaboration that really stand out to me. One is the criminal justice system and the healthcare system have very few touch points. They are somewhat strangers to each other. And as states and local governments make these changes, it's really essential that they work together and get to know each other. And in many cases, they don't even speak the same language. They were created, the two systems created for different purposes that operate by different roles. And both of those perspectives and sets of circumstances need to be navigated to produce successful outcomes for the person who's reentered. So I think that underscored the need for collaboration in this case. The other thing to underscore Khalil's point we each should recognize the limitations of our own experiences. I think it's very difficult for policymakers to understand the circumstances in prisons and jails because they're literally and intentionally walled off from us as a society. There aren't that many people who have insights into what the healthcare services are like there and what the circumstances of reentering are like. And so I think it is critical to have the perspective of people who operate the systems, of people who staff the systems, and importantly, the people who've experienced the systems actively engaged in the conversation, because those of us who haven't experienced incarceration have literally no visibility into what's happening in those systems. I want to highlight the point you both made around expertise and experiences. 
It's an important reminder that we cannot know it all, and it's alarming if we think we do. Even as stakeholders, we must know our limits. Finding mutual ground and having respect is crucial to get the work done while creating effective policies. You both also bring up crucial points about the importance of identifying and linking these two entities, the criminal justice system and healthcare. HARP's information page does a good job summarizing how broadening our lens on healthcare supports the advancement of, quote, multiple national goals, from improving health equity to reducing recidivism, strengthening public safety, and addressing public health crises related to mental health, addiction, and COVID-19, end quote. As the health field continues to assess and prepare for COVID-19's long-term impacts on public health, there's also been amplified response and attention to health equity across the sector. The pandemic further exposed health inequities based on race and ethnicity, and some of our lowest paid workers who are essential to our economy and community needs. Additionally, the murder of George Floyd amplified attention to the inequities of our justice system that continues to have an overwhelming misrepresentation of Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. In the policy realm, I'm curious about the impacts these pieces have had on these initiatives. Where did ideas for this project lie pre-COVID-19? And how would you describe the efforts that supported the growth of this policy priority? Well, I think clearly COVID-19 exposed some of the inequities in terms of healthcare that exist in the criminal justice system all the time. COVID-19 really magnified them. You know, there are estimates that people who were in prison had COVID rates five times that of the general population. The conditions in prisons and jails are ripe for transmission of infectious disease. People live in very close quarters, sometimes overcrowded. There's no social distancing possibilities. Sometimes the facilities themselves are not fully sanitized. People go in and out. And I think this is one key aspect of incarceration that COVID really helped illustrate, which is we think of people as being walled off. But first of all, you cannot build a wall against infectious disease. Second, people do exit and enter the system all the time, particularly in jails. So many people have short stays, some just a few hours. And of course, the correctional staff themselves leave every day and go home to their families, then come back the next day. And so that is really a, an environment that's ripe for transmission, not just within the facility, but without it. And so I think it really demonstrated from a public health perspective, that if we're going to tackle public health challenges, we need to think differently about prisons and jails. Now, in all candor, too often, there wasn't action taken. We didn't really live up to our potential to apprehend the virus in prisons and jails. But to your question, Brina, I think it did help illustrate some of the challenges there. And it coincided with a time that we were as a society taking a new look at incarceration, the role mass incarceration is playing in society, the fact that the United States has the highest incarceration rates of, ever, of any nation, the fact that people who are Black are five times more likely 
to be incarcerated than people who are white. That reflects improvement over the past 10 or 20 years, but it's still a really stark racial disparity. So I think as we started thinking about how to achieve equity, how to improve health, it kind of turned policymakers' attention to thinking differently about how can we support people at reentry. Predating COVID, I will say there was a growing interest, particularly at the federal level, in reentry generally, and how do we help people successfully reenter? And there's a good bipartisan base of interest in return and redemption that I think COVID and the recognition of equity and mass incarceration have really built on to bring us to this moment where we're sitting here starting to talk about the first changes to Medicaid's role since it was created. Yeah, and Vicky's response is spot on about just the sheer way that COVID exposed major flaws within healthcare delivery, within the incarceration settings, but also just the living conditions. I will say that as a country, while we were all grappling with how to deal with COVID-19 on the, on the outside, there were some really good efforts by some states and localities to try to manage the issue to protect folks who are being detained and or incarcerated, as well as correctional staff. But the reality is that many of those conditions still exist. And I think that's also an important point to keep in mind as we talk about not only HARP, but also the intersection of medical, particularly medical treatment and people who are detained and or incarcerated. So things like, for example, the delivery of healthcare within correctional settings still continues to be subpar at best subpar, in some places completely non-existent. As Vicky has mentioned, there are people who are incarcerated, who have histories of incarceration or criminal justice involvement, who are also much more higher likely to have long-term chronic illnesses and need much more intensive medical care. And it's statistically proven that those people all too often are the same ones who suffer the most and in many cases have the most severe symptoms because of COVID-19. Just the healthcare delivery in and of itself continues to be subpar. The overcrowding and dilapidated conditions that exist within correctional settings, both prisons and jails, continue to continue to exist. We've seen viral videos of correctional settings being exposed by people themselves who are incarcerated. And just the living conditions are completely subpar for a country like the United States. The churn of people that continue to go through jails, it's almost the same as it was during the height of the COVID pandemic. Now, we'll say that that churn, the sheer amount of people that go in and out of the criminal justice system, but particularly local jails, as Vicky had mentioned, continues to hover around the same rate. And that's the same for red states, blue states, purple states. And that's because there continues to be a lack of inadequate policies that exist on a local level to stop the churn, the sheer introduction of people into the criminal justice system who don't necessarily need to be there because there are underlying conditions, either it's medical or mental health, that bring up a need that when you deploy law enforcement to address that need, they view that as a threat, could view it as a threat, and all too often do view it as a threat, and therefore detain that person, run them through the criminal justice system, which again, in terms of COVID-19 conditions, is a primer 
for people to continue to be exposed to the virus and all too often get infected. And one clear example of this is what we've recently heard the New York City mayor, for example, talk about implementing, which is that he's going to use law enforcement, the New York City Police Department, to essentially detain people who are homeless or transient, who also display some level of a mental health need. And they're going to detain those people, send them to local hospitals and or jails against their will. They refuse to. And that has not been the policy. And in terms of COVID-19 and the current position that we are in around the pandemic, it's just another prime example of inadequate local policies that are driving this churn that in terms of health and the correctional system are only prime examples and, and prime conditions for the continuous spread of not only COVID-19, but also other communicable diseases. I really appreciate the way you describe that this is really a continuous churn of our high incarceration rates. You both paint an important picture on the root issue that we see around the intersection of chronic illnesses and incarceration and how this very much existed pre-COVID-19. We have known for a long time that change is needed. This opportunity for Medicaid to provide more innovation and creativity to support the needs of our most vulnerable community members in tandem with criminal justice policies is crucial to not only change how we provide proper support services for people to have higher health outcomes, but also how we view our criminal system as a whole. As we move towards this initial step to increase health access and attention to have healthier people and decrease recidivism rates, what do you think are the next steps for Medicaid and criminal justice policy if the Section 1115 waivers for re-entry are accepted? It's a great question because I think we really stand at the cusp of a pretty exciting moment in terms of the evolution of healthcare policy. So where we stand right now is that there are 13 states that have gone to the federal government to ask for authority for them to cover some services in the period immediately before someone is released in, from prison and jail. So the way that, the, that these proposals work are the federal government has authority to waive some of the provisions of Medicaid law. And so in this case, they would be waiving the provision of Medicaid law that says you can't cover services except for hospital services when someone is incarcerated. And once the state makes that proposal, there's a period of discussion and negotiation between the state government and the federal government. And I think with some states, that process is going on actively right now. And they explore questions like, how is this actually going to work? What policy authority do we need to provide? And so those would be state-specific changes that are made if they're approved in, in each state. There's also, at the same time, federal legislative changes under discussion. The Medicaid Reentry Act would allow Medicaid to cover services in the 30 days prior to release all across the country in, in all states. And there's still potential for that to be enacted this year. So lots of activity at the state and federal level. Now, the question you asked, Brina, and the question that the Health and Reentry Project really tried to interrogate was, how should this work? How could we translate these changes so that they have maximum impact on people's lives 
taking into account the need for the criminal justice system and the health system to do their jobs and hopefully do them better. And so we engaged 70 stakeholders earlier this year from across sectors. We had an advisory committee made up of cross-sector leaders. And as Khalil mentioned earlier, they came together easily around a vision for how these changes should take place. They prioritized having active supports for someone when they're re-entering, rather than allowing someone to navigate systems alone at a time of great vulnerability in their lives. They advocated for direct patient navigation supports, having people access primary care that's linked to behavioral health care prior to and after release and prioritizing trauma-informed approaches, healthcare approaches that can help people overcome a history of trauma, which many people who are leaving the justice system do. The potential of adopting that approach is that we can advance equity, meet people's needs, and help people basically return to their families and communities healthy and whole. Now, there's also a lot of nuts and bolts that goes along with that, and we can talk about that, but that was really the, the overall vision of you know, what it is that someone really needs at release to be successful. And I would just add that what are the next steps, as in what need to be the next steps, and what I hope some of the next steps all too often could be two different answers. What I hope is that the implementation of this notion of access to Medicaid as a way to address what have been gaping holes that we all know exist around reentry, particularly as it relates to the kind of seamless care of not only medical, but also mental health treatment. I hope that this is a test that really goes well because it is, you know, to Vicky's point earlier, it is remaining a fact that the United States of America continues to be the leading incarcerator in the world and policies law enforcement policies, criminal justice policies still exist that will maintain those numbers, unfortunately. We still have over a million people incarcerated in some state prison across this country. We still have roughly about half a million people churning in and out of local jails across this country. We still have about more than 100,000 people in federal prisons and federal custody in this country. And so still, there are almost 2 million people who are in some jail, correctional setting, prison cell at any point in time on any given day in this country. What I'm hoping is that this is a test that will open the eyes and the minds of policymakers and decision holders to understand that the process of reentry is not just a incarcerated person and their family and communities issue. It's really an issue that if deeply invested in, and if done correctly, could allow for the complete elimination of, or at least a dramatic reduction of recidivism, which we know, unfortunately, even if we remove crimeless revocations, still is an issue for people who are re-entering. And as someone who has re-entered, now at this point, almost 13 years ago, the reality is that whether it was 13 years ago or 13 days ago, for the most part, people that leave jails and prisons don't want to go back, but they lack the systemic supports needed to actually balance themselves off and to actually get on good footing to then begin to live a different life. So I'm hoping that this is a test that goes well. And again, there's a lot at stake, but there's still a lot of uncharted water 
in front of us, including the Medicaid Reentry Act, but a slew of other local policies that could hinder and or support something like access to Medicaid dollars, which I'm hoping will be the first test of many that go successfully. I just want to call out three of the things, three of a larger set of things that it will be needed to make the, the implementation successful. The first is making sure we have a strong base of access to community health care and behavioral health care services that are there at release and are there to serve someone at release, as well as to serve people before the idea of incarceration ever becomes a reality for them. It is not like people's lives were generally going great and then they get incarcerated and then suddenly it's derailed. There are significant numbers of people who come into the justice system with acute health care, behavioral health care needs that have not been met. And so the imperative, I think, is to expand community health services through things like health centers, through reentry service providers, through social service providers, to try to make sure we're meeting people's needs both before and after release. And I think that's really the key to cracking some of the public safety and, and public health nut. In addition, cross-sector collaboration, bringing people around a table, making sure that law enforcement and courts, community health centers, and hospitals all understand each other and the rules of the road and how to work together, along with an accountability system, accountability to communities and accountability to people who are actually re-entering and helping them help oversee the implementation of these services and fine tune it. It's a policy that whose implementation I think we're gonna learn as we go. There'll be some successes and some places where we're going to need to fine tune. And so having some type of accountability structure in place, I think will be essential. I think most people without proximities to prison or jail have maybe unspoken and unrealized or very much spoken realized thoughts that people who have prison and jail experiences are deserving of whatever conditions they receive. And that that notion should help disincentivize people from going to jail or prison in the first place. And what those thoughts lack is the ugly fact of overcriminalization and that trauma you mentioned, Vicki. People are not entering prisons or jails healthy. And even if so, the trauma created within such institutions should not be acceptable. The quoted punishment people are serving is not death or infections or mistreatment. It is the space away from society to prevent more immediate quotes again on crime. And I think that often is forgotten when we think about the safety and care of justice involved people. HARP's recommendations are clear in addressing the importance of centering community into services, such as alignment and connection of justice systems and community health centers creating opportunity for those impacted by the justice system to work as community health care workers and peer support providers. And also to ensure that impacted stakeholders, particularly people formerly in jail and prison, are collaborated with in decision-making, strategic planning, and execution. For my last question, I know you touched on this earlier in our discussion, but I wanted to leave room to ask about what your identity or your lived experiences have added to what you offer at the policymaking level and how it particularly impacts the way you navigate the Medicaid and healthcare fields. I'll speak from the policy level. I come to this work 
as someone who's worked on health policy and health systems change for decades. And what brought me to this issue is having worked to try to advance public health, having worked to try to advance mental health, having worked to try to advance substance use and to address common chronic diseases like asthma and diabetes, infectious diseases, not just COVID, but syphilis, HIV, hepatitis C. We're not going to get to those goals for a health system if we're turning our back on the millions of people who are incarcerated in the United States. They experience nearly all of those conditions at higher rates than the general population. Yet when they're released, we're not addressing those needs. And so I think if you look at this from a macro health policy or health systems perspective, you know, if you just look at the question of how do we as the United States perform better on public health, chronic conditions, infectious disease, I think there's an imperative to really work with people who are leaving the justice system and, and help them get on track, you know, get to a point where they're also not just being healthy, because that's not the end goal for them. The end goal for them is to succeed in society, have healthy relationships with their families, enjoy their families, and successfully be part of their communities. And I think that these Medicaid changes can be part of unlocking that potential. Yeah, and I'll say in terms of my professional experience, when I well, mixed with my personal experience. Uh, when I left the New York State prison system, I returned to New York City. And when we talk about reentry and just the sheer amount of resources that are invested, not only by private philanthropy, but also by a local municipality, in this case, New York City, New York City is essentially the epicenter for reentry. It's, it's well-resourced. There are a ton of community-based organizations and non-for-profits that exist exclusively to help serve people who have left the criminal justice system. And so when I returned, my reentry was into this entire system, but yet there were still gaping holes that existed around the, the services that were needed and the resources that were still needed to adequately address the problem of reentry, which to one of Vicky's earlier points, has the overlapping of many other social and personal issues that exist. So that was the existence in which I reentered. One of my first jobs after I came home was working as a case manager for people who were HIV and AIDS positive, who many of them had had criminal justice involvement, and then later went to work at one of the largest reentry non-for-profits in New York City, and that provides the plethora of services needed for people who are exiting prison and or jails, many of them exiting the city's largest jail, which is Rikers Island. You know, my experience has been both as a service provider, as someone working to change policy, as an advocate, but also someone who has been directly impacted. You know, to come to this project, to come to the heart, was really bringing all of that experience. But again, I will say it was really refreshing to see people who were law enforcement officials government officials, people who were advocates, who worked in healthcare, people who, you know, people like Vicky had tremendous amount of experience on a federal level to manage Medicaid in and of itself, let alone to talk about all of the complexities of it. And it was really refreshing to see that as a group, we all had the same end goal. We all wanted to see people be given all of the resources and the help that they needed to live their best potential life. That's the experience that I brought. I hope that I shared it adequately to the group. 
And it was really refreshing to see people working collaboratively to lay out steps that are going to be needed to properly ensure that implementation is as successful as it can be. recorded in December of 2022, and the Section 1115 Waiver Approval announcements from CMS were expected by the end of the year. There are rumors that California's announcement will be the first, which will be an exciting first since it is one of the states that requested coverage starting 90 days pre-release. The CMS will include guidance on funding use following their approval, so we are waiting patiently. Thank you for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. Please share and follow us for more at gppreview.com.